as human beings, we are interconnected and we really do, I mean, the survival of humanity is dependent upon the well-being of one another. We've seen that no better than during this pandemic. Welcome to Contemplating Now, a podcast focused on the intersection of contemplation and social justice. Through interviews with scholars, mystics, and activists, this podcast will focus on contemplative spiritualities, direct relationship with issues of social justice. I'm your host, Cassidy Hall, a filmmaker, podcaster, pastor, and student, and I'm here to learn with you. Today on the podcast, the Reverend Dr. Pamela Lightsley. She's the author of Our Lives Matter, a womanist queer theology. She is a scholar, social justice advocate, and military veteran. Since January of 2018, she has served as Vice President of Academic and Student Affairs and Associate Professor of Constructive Theology at the Meadville Lombard Theological School. Before that, Dr. Lightsey served as Associate Dean of Community Life and Lifelong Learning, Clinical Assistant Professor of Contextual Theology and Practice at the Boston University School of Theology. Her work centers on the causes of peacemaking, racial justice, and LGBTQ rights. In her book, Our Lives Matter, she writes, Queer womanist theology makes the claim that those bodies of LGBTQ persons are important for the tasks of helping build a peaceable and just world. That happens in relationships. And she also writes, At the end of the day, eradicating oppression is the heart of queer womanist theological reflection. We must examine not just racism, but sexisms. Not just homophobia, but transphobia. Not just poverty, but war. And not just the fluidity of boundaries, but the hegemony of the status quo. Well, Dr. Lightsley, thank you so much for joining and for taking the time to be with me today. Welcome. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. In your book, Our Lives Matter, A Womanist Queer Theology, was completed during Ferguson in 2014, published in 2015. And with that, you took the time to add an epilogue to the work, which voiced your outrage and despair. And also as a veteran, you wrote that you felt a sense of deployment as a scholar and an activist. And in this epilogue, you specifically asked, what does it mean to be a theologian whose place for doing theology is within in alignment and or perhaps even as a participant within the activist movement? And I'm wondering today in you know, 2021, could you speak into that question? Sure. I was particularly concerned when I was writing and as I was doing the work. I mean, the reason that I was in Ferguson and later in Baltimore, I was in Ferguson for more than just a brief period of time. My relationship with Ferguson spanned across years after Ferguson. So I established deep relationships and you know, commitments that lasted beyond. And that was good. And it should be so. My question was a question about the way that scholars have generally done their work. I saw scholarship as being work that's done almost as a spectator, if you will, of the events and the issues of our time that we somehow are disattached or or believed to be unattached from those issues. And I saw it in the book and in my work to make it clear that I was not trying to be an unattached presence in the commitment to liberation and justice. And that my scholarship, that I was committing my scholarship 
as I was committing my body to being in the midst of the protest. Now, here we are in 2021. There's an insurrection that has taken place at the Capitol. What does that now mean? You know, what does protest now mean for a scholar? I think in, in many ways, it means even more the necessity for the scholar to understand the goals and the motivation of the protest prior to committing, even on paper, a connection to that movement and affinity that uh, even saying that one resonated with the movement, you really have to understand it. Uh, and it's really important that we do that now more than ever before. You don't want to be, you don't want to naively engage a, a protest whose goals, whose motivations, whose ultimate aim is the overthrow of the government, you see. Black Lives Matter, the aim of Black Lives Matter was justice and the end of excessive police force, ultimately the killing of black bodies, which we've seen on repeat over and over and over and over again. That in contrast to the insurrectionists who saw and who articulating, I mean, a primary goal of taking over the United States government to control the government. They've not said what they're going to do. They didn't say what they're going to do once they control it. What is the plan once you get in, once you have the, you know, have the capital, have the legislature, what are you gonna do for the people, people like me? You know, and, and during that time was really a lot of criticism against Black Lives Matter saying there, you know, what are you all, what, what's your goal? What are you shooting for? I don't know how many times the goals of Black Lives Matter and before that hands up, don't shoot had to be articulated for the public. So that's where I am on that issue. Thank you for that. You know, it strikes me that you were writing a book when Ferguson happens, the death of Mike Brown more specifically happens, the murder of Mike Brown. It strikes me that you were kind of in this maybe, maybe contemplative space. You were writing, you were processing, you were doing these kinds of things. Yet the urgency, right? The urgency occurs. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to maybe the need for contemplation to know that, that we're aligned with something. Does that allow us to more urgently respond to things? I don't know that I have an answer to that. I can, I, and I hesitate to speak with a broad brush. I can only speak to my sensibilities and my sensibilities have been shaped by any number of things. One, by growing up in a community that very much understood its place in the scheme of things, and that just not being the material world, but understanding that there was a spiritual world at work and that we were in the, in the middle. We were but human beings in the middle of many things happening that we could see and not see, and that there were some things happening that were outside our control. I grew up understanding that not everything is gonna be in my control as a human being, okay? That understanding that there are matters in this world that are outside human control have suited me well, both as a person of faith and as a, as a scholar. It has given me the luxury to rest easy with the questions of life. 
with things not being resolved totally with also understanding that my work is, is a continuation and may not always be a period at the end of, of a sentence, but may be some uh, ellipses or commas or, you know, continuations. You know, I am a contemplative person also because I've experienced a community of Pentecostal believers who also very much so reminded me of the spirit world. Now, sometimes that experience was really raggedy and lacked sound theology. And over the years, I've had to kind of reshape myself without totally tossing away the very fine things that Pentecostalism excuse me, offered me and gave me, but it certainly gave me an appreciation for the contemplative, for sitting oneself down and just resting, you know, connecting with another dimension of life. I think for activists in particular, it's important to acknowledge rest, even sleep is a form of contemplation, right? It is a regeneration, a meeting place, a, a sacred pause. I think it's good. I hesitate to speak for all activists in terms of a kind of spirituality or religiosity because I speak through the lens of, of a Christian. And there are activists who are not, not Christian. There are activists who are agnostic, atheist, and are doing very fine work. And I respect and appreciate them for that. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to articulate it in, in that way, although I know very much so that a good number of Black activists, because such a large percentage of Black people in America uh, ascribe to spirituality at the very most, and Christianity, I say now, at the very least. I would have switched that up maybe a decade or two ago, but we do believe and understand ourselves to be spiritual beings, that... Um, a sense of or an appreciation for contemplative space for one's health and well-being is certainly necessary. We talk about it all the time, and that is taking care of yourself in order to take care of others. Uh, and I'm with a group of activists who are committed to resistance, but also committed to our well-being. It has really been good for me. That reminds me of... Um, in your book, you write, oppression on one level intersects with oppression on other levels. There is no safe quadrant of society if we allow unchecked and unprovoked hostilities to occur against any single community of people. Racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia are equally discriminatory. And we do a disservice to humanity when we try to parse them out and level them up or subscribe a percentage or, you know, a certain magnitude to one over and against another. They're, they're all horrible. They're all equally destructive to the human being, to our society and to our communities. And I think it, it, as we're paying attention to one, we are also making invisible the other you know so we and until that other demands its attention you know you ascribe attention to sexism then 
what about racism? You know, so it's, it's a, it's a journey. It's not a juggling act, but it's a journey towards giving, giving attention to the fullness of who we are as human beings, while at the same time, trying to resist, I think in some ways, human nature to make subordinate certain other human beings uh, on the basis of categorizing that women are less than men, that Black people are less than white identified persons, so on and so forth, that heterosexual persons are you know, better than the LGBTQ community. As human beings, we are interconnected and we, we really do, I mean, the survival of humanity we've, is dependent upon the well-being of one another. We've seen that no better than during this pandemic. The race to a vaccine has been dependent upon human beings across a spectrum of diverse identities. And we've needed those persons. Yeah, that's another thing I really appreciated about your book and actually wrote about for a class is recognizing the dynamic and the expanse of the Imago Dei, the image of God, as we see these intersectionalities, right? As we see each other, God expands. And more specifically, I identify as a queer woman. And in your book, you write, as queers, we declare that God cannot be limited. God is not finite. And I think along with that, queerness has something to offer to activism, to movements in the way that it expands the appearance of God. And again, of course, we're talking in Christian terms in particular right now, but I wonder if you could speak into that a little bit. For me, the beauty of queerness is that it encourages people to deal with the ambiguity of life and the complexity of the human being. That's the beauty of identifying as queer. I identify as queer lesbian for any number of reasons, which we don't have time to go into today. But the beauty of queerness is that it asks us to accept ourselves as complex as we really are. And I'm still working with accepting some human beings in their complexity. Some things I don't like about them. Some things I read about them. I say, ooh, if I knew about that, I wouldn't. Ooh, I wouldn't. But then that part of me that understands human beings as complex is, okay, well, will you just throw this away? Will you throw this brilliance away because of this? You know, um, is humanity totally irredeemable? I don't think so. I think there's something redeemable about humanity, even though I have a low anthropology on most days, I think there is something that is redeemable about humanity. I mean, I deal with myself, you know, I'm, I'm my worst critic. So I think there is something redeemable and queerness allows us space, not only for the complexity and the differences, but also for the imperfection. And we don't, I don't think we talk enough about that in queer space. Queerness allows us the capacity to embrace imperfection more than anything else that I have really worked on in my academic career. Thank you for that. You're welcome. It's been Thank a you. great conversation with you. 
Yes, likewise. I bid you well on your scholarship and your writing. I see all your beautiful books. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Take care. You too. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for taking the time to listen to today's episode. To support this work and get sneak peeks of new episodes, join me at patreon.com slash Cassidy Hall. This podcast is created and edited by me, Cassidy Hall. Today's episode features the song Trapezoid Instrumental by Emily Sankofa, which she has generously allowed us to use. Please find this song and more from Emily Sankofa on your favorite streaming platform like Spotify or by visiting e-sankofa.com. The podcast is created in partnership with The Christian Century, a progressive ecumenical magazine based in Chicago. The podcast is also created in partnership with Enfleshed, an organization focused on spiritual nourishment for collective liberation. For liturgical resources and tools, go to enfleshed.com. And for those still here, one last reading from Reverend Dr. Pamela Lightsley's book, Our Lives Matter. A Womanist Queer Theology. On page 63, she writes, Black spirituality is deeper than, and can also be absent from, any relationship with the church universal. Black spirituality, especially black women's spirituality, is connected to our very being.